Scripture reading today comes from John 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Amen. We are continuing our current series on uh, how we can better integrate uh, the Easter message uh, into our daily Christian lives. Um, using verses from John 20, uh, we're looking at uh, three what they call post-mortem appearances, uh, resurrection appearances to Jesus, to his followers. Uh, last Sunday, we examined how uh, outside the tomb, uh, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, uh, who was so overwrought at the loss of her beloved teacher. Uh, we talked about how the eternal love of God not only survives, uh, but can overcome grief, anger, and even death. Uh, from our passage today, uh, we'll think about how the resurrection can infuse uh, lasting peace, uh, inner peace, outer peace, um, amidst the fears of anxiety that constantly try to envelop us. Now, I titled the message Easter Fears, right? Last week it was Easter Tears, Easter Fears to try to show how the Easter spirit helps us gain freedom from uh, various kinds of fears. Our text places us uh, uh, in uh, the uh, gathering of the disciples on the evening of Easter Sunday. Uh, the tomb has been confirmed as empty and Mary has shared the personal encounter she had with the risen Lord. Uh, the disciples, however, are still racked with various uh, fears uh, to the point they're in kind of a first century lockdown, right, so to speak. What kind of fears uh, might the disciples have been experiencing the most intensively? Uh, what are some of the anxieties uh, we most struggle with uh, today? So I kind of try to categorize them or list them. So fear for safety. Uh, they were afraid for their well-being because uh, their leader had been arrested and and killed. So verse 19 talks about, hey, we locked the door. And then fear of uncertainty. So um, this resurrection thing was so kind of otherworldly to them. And they weren't quite sure, like, what was reality, what was fact, or what was something else. And so verse 20, I think, uh, Jesus addresses that. And then uh, uh, the last uh, three or so verses are what I call the fear of rejection. Uh, I'm going to try to talk about how the disciples must have felt a, a pretty strong sense of guilt, uh, of sorrow for what they did to Jesus. And so that uneasiness that comes from a broken relationship, how does the resurrection address that? Um, so let's look at them uh, one by one. First, uh, fear for safety. Uh, that the disciples uh, were afraid for their lives is very clear. 
They huddled behind locked doors because they were afraid of the powerful people who arrested and then had Jesus executed. Uh, their fear was great and uh, pretty well-founded. I think it's quite plausible that they could be similarly arrested and tried or at least uh, undergo some form of punishment. But then Jesus appears in their midst. Uh, so much for the security measures taken, right? Um, the first words Jesus directs at them, uh, however, say it all. Uh, the assurance that he utters is so apropos. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. The very thing that had eluded the disciples ever since Jesus was arrested, tortured, and crucified. Right? Peace was the one thing that none of them could possess in any appreciable measure. Because fear deconstructs peace. Right? When our lives are laden, when it's burdened with anxieties and fears and insecurities, as, as Marge, Marge mentioned before the first song, right? uh, it displaces peace. We can't be at rest. We can't be secure. And these guys were so sorely afraid. These days, uh, we know a thing or two about fearing for our safety. You know, we faced a pandemic that has a death toll in America alone uh, to the tune of 572,000 as of last Friday night. I checked the Johns Hopkins counter. And to me, uh, this is still, you know, a pretty incomprehensible number, like unfathomable that uh, this is, you know, a fact. Uh, that the past year or so, 572,000 people in America right, have died to the virus. Um, yet, I think many of us uh, must know at least one person or more who have died from COVID. And although the vaccines offer some hope, um, they are not foolproof. And so the constant pressure to keep ourselves, our families, our friends, our church, our neighbors safe, it's been so very taxing, uh, if not debilitating. It has really made us, you know, kind of afraid, yeah, insecure. Now add to that, as Sam prayed, the rash of violence uh, that makes even simple tasks frightening. I read in CNN this past week about how a local uh, Asian American dentist who also runs a popular food blog started offering reimbursements to college students uh, who felt unsafe taking public transportation and wanted to take a cab, right, but couldn't really afford to. Um, so she raised about $100,000 to help fund rides for students. Uh, Cafe Maddie Cab, right? Cafe Maddie Cab, if you need to use it as a name. Uh, thus far, more than 2,000 Venmo reimbursements have been paid to help give students some peace of mind. And she thinks the demand will continue to rise. And then despite the uh, Derek Chauvin guilty verdict rendered this week, closely following on its heels were several new gun slings of Black Americans by law enforcement. Um, some of the very police uh, officers were supposed to right, give us a sense of protection and safety and, and peace uh, actually instill fear right, in Black Americans and others. Uh, the John 20 scenario is arguably similar. The unlawful use of executive power by the religious establishment was a threat to the safety of the disciples. 
So in the midst of all this, where can we find peace in this terribly uneasy existence we find ourselves immersed in? Uh, I think God's big answer, right? Certainly there's a lot of little answers, but the big answer, uh, at least from uh, this passage, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is his, his answer, right? That's his, the way that he tells us that we can experience peace. Peace be with you. Peace be with me. Peace be uh, with us. Peace be with to this world. Um, you know, it's because the resurrection deals with death, right? It's the penultimate power, right? Death was up to that point, right? The ultimate power. Nobody could overcome it. Nobody, it, it just won all the time. But Jesus shows that he is actually Lord over life and death. And he showed that the power of God uh, expressed in raising Jesus from the dead, the love of God for the Son, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, proved to be the greatest power in the world. So it became the ultimate power. It prevailed. It won out. It defeated. It destroyed death. I, I mentioned that many times. So, you know, you can imagine the bewilderment, the confusion, the heaviness that the disciples uh, must have been undergoing. Uh, and in their darkest hour, Jesus comes to them and says, just, just try to imagine hearing these words, peace uh, be with you, right? Because I have come from the tomb, because I have destroyed death, you no longer need to fear death. You no longer need to fear punishment and pain. Right? These are un all undesirable, unpleasant, and to be avoided. But if it comes our way, as death will, physical death, uh, the greatest of enemies up to that time, no longer need to control us, no longer need to dominate us, no longer need to rob us of peace. Yeah, uh, the fear for our safety has been radically addressed uh, by Jesus. So the credibility uh, that Jesus possesses, right, because he has overcome uh, sin and hell and death and fear, yeah, Jesus, because he speaks these words, because he shows us that there is life beyond the grave, that we can not only survive, but uh, experience you know, the best of what God designed, the best of what God put in us, uh, that peace, that ultimate peace, um, permanent peace. Yeah, the nail-scarred Prince of Peace can offer that uh, to us. And he does that to his frightened cadre of followers. Today, you know, uh, all of us, I think, are going through this fear of for our safety. And, and I pray, I hope that the resurrection can help you can give you strength, even if it's just strength for a day, strength for a, a moment, right? Even just a kind of a stabilizing strength. I hope that you get to experience it. Uh, I'm going to move on. Second, in addition to the disciples' fear for their safety, I want to say that there must have also been an uneasiness about what has actually happened. The reports about Jesus' body being absent from the tomb, they had heard Mary's account, but what did it really mean? The uncertainty of it all uh, could translate into a real sense of, I think, fear. Like, if you don't know if something is really what they say it is, and it's a big deal, and it's like, you know, a game changer, that kind of like, that, that's kind of distressful. It's, it's troubling, I think, when you don't know what's really happening, right? Mary's account was amazing, but 
it could also have been very perplexing, right? It sounded too good to be true, miraculous, but is there a trap? You know, there's like our, our minds can go in a million different directions and hasn't it, especially the past year or maybe the past four and a half years, um, right? Uh, there's so many, uh, especially today, uh, such a, a glut of contradicting, contradictory information sources, and it all leaves us in a rather foggy state. Depending on one's diet of media, whether traditional or social, and you know where on the spectrum, right, uh, left or right, um, things seem hopelessly confused and convoluted. Disinformation is everywhere. Conspiracy theories abound. Conspiracy theories about conspiracy theories pile onto the morass. But where can we find clarity? Where uh, does certitude lie? Uh, into this state of uh, unrest, uncertainty, confusion for the disciples. Again, Jesus appears in their midst uh, in spite of the bolted doors. Uh, at first, I think I, it would have been very alarming to see uh, the guy you just buried a couple of days ago materialize out of thin air. Woo, he's there. Was it an apparition? Was it a hallucination? Uh, thankfully, along with the words of reassurance, Jesus shows them his hands and his side. He provides concrete evidence that he was not a ghost or somebody else. It really was Jesus, the same Lord and Master who had been crucified, who they knew but had, had died and now was risen. He had risen and appeared to them to show the veracity of what Mary had told them, as well as the actualization of what he had been telling them all along, that he would be killed and then raised, which obviously they did not understand or believe before. So Jesus invites them to put their confidence in him and a result as a result of their uh, verification they go from confused bewildered uncertain to overjoyed it wasn't just oh that's nice they were like jumping for joy this was uh, beyond right happiness they were elated to come to this conviction that jesus was really there he was in their midst he was alive. As improbable as the resurrection was, the disciples found peace uh, by overcoming their skepticism and disbelief uh, by literally being with Jesus. So it was more than just kind of a, a, a mental kind of cognitive conviction, right? They touched him, they embraced him, they, they smelled him, they interacted with him, they were with him. And that, I think, that's what really gave them a sense of peace, right? Intellectual persuasion, uh, knowing the facts, knowing a lot of facts, that can help, right? I'm not saying that we don't know all we need to know, especially something about the resurrection. Study it, examine it, you know, look, go through the arguments, think through it, do, do all that, please. But it, the resurrection is not just a, a mental exercise, right? It's supposed to be personally experienced. We're supposed to hang out. We're supposed to love. We're supposed to get to know, draw deeper with the risen Lord himself. Right? That's the great thing about the resurrection because it leads us into a, potentially leads us into a, a deeper relationship with the resurrected Christ. Right? So although studying and analyzing arguments uh, and evidence for the resurrection can be helpful uh, for many people. 
it doesn't give us peace, enough peace. So what I think is what is needed is more of a, a deeper, more vibrant relationship and experience with the risen Lord. Right? So more quality time, walking with, praying, listening, reading, uh, crying out, being loved, communing, uh, all the things we talk about in loving Jesus with uh, all our lives. That, I think, is what's going to drive home the resurrection truth as well as the effects, the benefits of, 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 the, of what has happened. Uh, by way of analogy, let me uh, try to share some reflections from a 2021 book I recently finished called uh, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice by Jamar Tisby. Among the many things that he talks about, he kind of has a rubric and he calls it the ARC, A-R-C, of racial uh, justice, right? He encourages the reader to pursue a journey towards the arc of racial justice. I think it's a sort of nod to the famous Martin Luther King Jr. quote about the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. So ARC, arc, represents awareness, relationships, and commitment. Right? And he's, he suggests that we need all three to grow in all three in order to kind of navigate this path. So, you know, awareness, you know, learning, um, Gaining more knowledge, study uh, entails like looking at history, including our own, the Bible's, uh, you know, uh, truths, other primary sources to kind of build up the, 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 the bank or the tranche of knowledge, uh, information and data to fight racism. And then our relationships with other people who are adversely impacted by racist ideas and deeds, uh, having those kind of strong, real relationships can bring us closer to this, you know, uh, pain and struggles that people go through. So developing cross-cultural relationships, collegiality, it helps us develop the burden to combat, combat racism. And then C, commitments to help dismantle racist structures, laws, and policy. Right? So he says, think of it as, you know, the, the famous triumvirate, head, heart, and hands. So awareness is the head. Yes, we need to know truth. We need to know facts, we need to know reality. Relationship, that's the heart. Really communicate with people, right? It's not just an abstract exercise. It's not just a sociological phenomenon. It's about real people and real pain and real death, right? And a commitment, uh, that's the hands. Do something about it. Do what you can, big, small, visible, invisible. Uh, but it, it's that effort. It's that commitment that uh, will uh, change us. Right? So I did not find that to be uh, pretty helpful, right? And I think I'm saying that awareness of the resurrection is great, but, you, but he, for today's message, it's relationship with the resurrected Jesus that makes all the difference. So I was thinking uh, with respect to some of the other difficult doctrines of the Christian faith, yeah, we, we should really, you know, have this experience, right? Uh, personally, let us be convicted of the resurrection of Christ by spending time with the resurrection of Christ, that gain that peace and confidence that he is alive and well, not only, you know, in the Bible, not only in the universe, but in my heart, right? And, and, and in your hearts, you know. Uh, so Mona told me about a, this uh, story she heard about a, a mother who gave a book to a, uh, a guy, a high school senior who was about to go off to college. And so the it was about some subject matter. The kid read it and studied it. And then he went to college and he actually uh, took a class from the professor who wrote the book. 
And the idea was that reading the book was one thing, but actually listening to a lecture, interacting with a professor really drove home, really made the book come alive. The, the arguments, the theories, the, the, the point being made uh, by, by the book, by the professor. I had kind of a similar experience um, a few years back where I was taking some classes uh, in theology at Princeton Seminary. And uh, I was supposed to start in the fall. The summer before, I had a friend who was uh, studying at, doing like a sabbatical study at Wheaton College, you know, in, um, in uh, the Chicago area. And so he was taking like a one-week class where the subject matter was uh, Karl Barth, one of the famous theologians. And, uh, you know, we were reading, doing some readings and talking in the class. And he found out that I was going to go to seminary and um, that I was going to take uh, classes from one of the professors that he looked to as a kind of an intellectual mentor, right? Uh, and so he was talking to me and you could see kind of the jealousy and envy in his eyes. He goes, you're going to be able to take classes with Bruce McCormick, the guy we're reading for this class. And like you could tell, I mean, he's a full-blown PhD himself and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But it, just the chance to interact with that professor, I made him kind of, yeah, uh, I think professionally uh, a little bit envious and, and stuff. So I kind of took it in stride and I go, okay, I, I guess this guy likes Professor McCormick. But when I actually not only read his book, which was so abstruse, I, like, I didn't know what he was talking about, but when I actually started taking his classes, it really did make a difference having, you know, hearing him lecture and asking questions and interacting with him. I actually was able to take a seminar with him one semester and uh, there was a lot of personal interaction and he did some office hours and I got to know him personally and it really helped me understand a lot of, I don't understand everything of course, but you know, more than I did when I had just read the book. Right? Um, and in the end, I applied for this uh, program and he actually wrote a recommendation letter. So that was kind of cool, right? I should call Dr. Husbands back in Wheaton and say, ha ha, I got it. <laughs> no, I won't do that. But I think you understand my point. Knowing in the mind, right, is only part of the experience. It's uh, uh, touching his hands and his sides. So we're going to do more of that uh, when we look at Thomas. But uh, I think this might help us uh, overcome the fear of uncertainty. Right, the fear of confusion. Okay, uh, we've done, um, covered two categories, if you will, a fear demonstrated by the disciples. So we did the fear of, for safety, fear of uncertainty now. The third and last type of fear for me to talk about is the fear of rejection. Although not explicitly stated, these disciples must have harbored a sense of guilt uh, for failing to stand up for their Lord and Master. They had abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. They had failed to live up to their promises. Peter, worst of all, uh, emphatically denied even knowing Jesus at all uh, three times. Now that Jesus was back, would he be upset with them? Would they be punished? How could their relationship be restored? Um, when we lose a relationship with someone, uh, especially to death, there can be a host of regrets gut-wrenching memories, uh, the things I should have said or done yeah, for them, this can be a great burden uh, to us. We wish we had had more time or another chance with them, uh, and this can be quite paralyzing. My view is that Jesus uh, anticipates this unease that the disciples must have felt and preempts 
their misgivings by actually commissioning them to carry out the work that he had come to earth to initiate and install. And that's what he died for, right? It's kingdom's work. Uh, Jesus tells them in verse 21, um, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. So he kind of reinfolds them into his calling. Once again, the father's purpose in sending his son to establish the kingdom of God, which entailed raising Jesus from the dead, was now their task. The father's authority that had been transferred to the son was now in turn transferred to the disciples. Jesus was entrusting the ongoing kingdom ministry to these frightened, unsteady fellows who stood before him, uh, tails between their legs. Uh, Jesus cuts to the chase and says, my mission is now your mission. All that I've taught and showed you, you must now teach and show uh, others. And, and, in, and to a big degree, I think that includes forgiveness. Just as you've received forgiveness from me, you need to uh, communicate the message of forgiveness. This is what you needed most of all, and that's what I gave you. So I'm forgiving you. I'm not abandoning you. I'll never abandon you. And in a remarkable, tangible, I think beautiful act of forgiveness, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit upon them. He reconstitutes their disciplehood, discipleship, by inspiring, literally, the Holy Spirit into them. Uh, what a remarkable picture of divine grace. The undeserving disciples are infused with the Holy Spirit of God. Right? The Spirit, of course, will empower them to carry out the gospel mission. Uh, scholars hold this as kind of a foretaste of what they will receive en masse at the day of Pentecost, shortly when the Holy Spirit alights upon them to enable them to boldly preach the good news of the resurrection. Uh, in my mind, the Spirit here also relates to the issue of forgiveness. If these uh, unholy men, you know, due to their betrayal, remained unholy, uh, how could they be vessels of the Holy Spirit? Now, Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 1.12 that no one can confess Jesus as Lord without the Spirit of God. So the fact of his breathing the Holy Spirit on them meant that forgiveness was real. Forgiveness was uh, there. So it has been actualized. So verse 23, let's read that again. If anyone, for, if you forgive anyone, his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And furthermore, and amazingly, Jesus authorizes them to extend this forgiveness, which is basically the gospel uh, to others. Wow. However, we tend to interpret this verse. Uh, it is very moving, at the least, um, that Jesus would include wretched sinners like us, like them, like us, in the forgiveness process is nothing short of pure grace. Because we were first forgiven, uh, we can help others uh, to be forgiven. Now, this passage, this verse has um, uh, been controversial among various uh, Christian traditions in church history. Uh, some read this as a direct grant to the apostles of the ability themselves to forgive or not forgive sins. And I think a reading of maybe only this text as such may suggest that. But if we view the entire, at least, New Testament or the Revelation of Scripture, uh, maybe that's too narrow a reading. Uh, you know, only God and His Son, right, because of their holiness, you know, in, inherent holiness, have the authority to forgive sins. Human beings are human beings. Even when we've been forgiven, we still struggle with um, the human nature, with sinful nature, right? So 
though we will not become perfect, we ourselves will always be susceptible to the sinful nature until we get to heaven when sin, uh, the presence of sin will be um, eradicated. So instead of the direct power of forgiveness or non-forgiveness to the apostles, I, I think I follow the interpretation that what Christ is giving here is the uh, means of communicating the way of forgiveness. So in other words, by preaching Christ and him crucified and risen, others can put their faith. They can be forgiven through what Jesus has done. Right? We don't do the forgiving. God does the Holy Spirit does the forgiving. But unless we tell others, unless we do our job, unless we fulfill our task of offering forgiveness, offering the message of the good news, forgiveness won't happen. Somehow, God depends on us, quote-unquote, depends on us. He asks us to carry the Holy Spirit uh, to others. And if we don't, somehow, right, God doesn't get to communicate. God doesn't get to uh, forgive. It's a huge privilege. It's a huge burden. It's a huge power. So if we're too lazy or too busy to tell others about it, then we may, they may never have the opportunity to ask Christ for forgiveness. So, so just look at these disciples. They go from cowering behind locked doors, afraid that even if Jesus shows up, they're going to get in trouble to this amazing commission and this amazing call to now take that divine forgiveness to everybody and any uh, body, right? I can imagine how liberating, how peace, powerfully peaceful their hearts could have become because of what Jesus did post-resurrection. Uh, uh, I think there are many stories of redemption, right, in literature, in media, maybe in your own life, about how forgiveness, how Jesus's personal um, Uh, liberating us from our guilt and sin uh, can be transformative, right? I, I always think the classic example is, you know, um, Victor Hugo's Les Mis, right? Les Mis Rob, where Jean Valjean is kind of, you know, he's been in prison for 20 years and then he commits another crime and he could go back to prison. He could, you know, his life could be uh, forever or, you know, be, be destroyed. Uh, but the person he stole from, uh, a Catholic bishop, uh, forgives him. He does not press charges. And Valjean is permitted to go free. And that act of forgiveness, that empowerment, right, that changes his life. He realizes that he really is himself a child of God and that he can receive the forgiveness of God through the Catholic bishop and that he could now change his life. And, and he does, right? He turns he becomes a mayor, he becomes a businessman, and he helps a lot of people. And the rest of his life is uh, uh, evidence of that kind of change. Yeah, to go from the fear of punishment, the fear of, of re-imprisonment, Valjean becomes a new person. Uh, and, I, you know, I think Hugo uh, had that, the, the uh, example or the, the idea of Christ in mind, of what Jesus has done uh, for us. Um, so we talked about three types of fear and how the one resurrection event 
can help us to be free from these and, and other fears. Why don't we pray? And now, why don't we reflect? Um, what are the fears that you're struggling with? How can the resurrection impact it? Or if it's already been impacted, uh, thank God for the changes that have occurred. Um, do you have a sense of peace, peace uh, in the battle, uh, light in the darkness, uh, a sense of wholeness? Um, you know, what has the resurrection done? What are the Easter fears right, that have been changed by the resurrection? Let's pray.